Well, today is the day that we celebrate the fact that Jesus is alive. We celebrate the truth that Jesus does turn graves into gardens. Today's the day we remember when God took what should have been the most crushing defeat of all time and turned it into the greatest victory of all time. I mean, he flipped everything on its head. When Jesus died, but then God brought him back to life and rolled the stone from the front of the tomb and Jesus walked out of that grave in victory and triumph over sin and death. That's what we celebrate today. And today we, we remember that the fact that Jesus is alive changes everything. It changed everything back then and it changes everything today. I mean, think about the difference that it made for the disciples back then. They, when Jesus died, they were depressed. They were without direction. They didn't know what to do. I think about what Peter had said when he earlier said to Jesus, we left everything to follow you, and now he's gone. So what do you do next? I mean, what, what do you do when the man that you have left everything to follow is murder right in the prime of his life. That's the situation the disciples were in. And so when Jesus came back from the dead, it changed everything. And they didn't see it coming. I mean, Jesus had talked about his death. He talked about his resurrection, but they didn't get it. They didn't understand what he was saying. And I don't blame them. I don't think I would have really understood it either. But when he came back... It turned hopelessness, it turned despair into a living hope. And they surged with so much energy and so much power that nothing could stop them. In fact, nothing could keep them quiet. They went around telling the good news to anybody who would listen and, and talked about how Jesus was alive. And so the resurrected Christ changed everything back then. And I would contend that he still changes everything today. Now, frankly... Maybe some are a little bit skeptical about that, and if so, I think that's fair. I think it's a fair question to ask. Are we making a bigger deal out of this than we should? I mean, are church people really kind of blowing this out of proportion a little bit? I mean, even if Jesus really did come back from the grave, does it really change everything? And if that's anybody's thought process, I have to say that I understand that because that's the way I once thought too. Frankly, I thought, ah, you know, this is a little overblown. And then something changed my mind. And the passage that we're going to be in today uh, will give some insight into kind of what changed in, in, in my thinking. And maybe it will for some of us today as well. We're in Colossians chapter 2 today. And I want you to open your Bible there with me if you would. Colossians 2. Starting in verse 9, we're going to read verses 9 through 15 and kind of camp out in this passage a little bit. So let's just jump in here together. It says, starting in verse 9, it says, For in Christ all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. And in Christ you have been brought to fullness. He is the head over every power and authority. In him you also were circumcised with a circumcision not performed by human hands. Your whole self, ruled by the flesh, was put off when you were circumcised by Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through your faith in the working of God, who raised him from the dead. When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, 
God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He, took, he has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Now, as many of you know, uh, we are, have been in and kind of wrapping up a series that we've been in called Heroes. And we've been looking at different heroes of the faith and, and really just kind of looking to them as some examples of what God can do to transform a person's life. Really not trying to become like any of the characters in the Bible other than Jesus. But, but it helps to see how they have been transformed and become more Christ-like. And today we get to talk about the fact that Jesus is really ultimately our one true hero. He's the one that deserves all of our worship. Today is really all about Jesus as we celebrate him. And, and uh, so... In verse 9, it kind of gives us some insight into why that's the case. Why is it that, that Jesus really is our one true hero? And the answer is because Jesus is God who took on human skin. He is God in uh, human flesh. And it says in verse 9, it puts it this way. It says, for in Christ all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. And in Christ, it says, we have been brought um, to fullness as well. And so this, this idea that Christ is both a human being and God in human flesh is really what this is getting at. The fullness of the deity and bodily form. John's, in, in his gospel, really gave some great insight into this because that's a mind-blowing concept, right? I mean, we've, if you've been around church before, you, maybe you've heard that, and that. But, I mean, really to stop and think about, how could a human being be both God and a man at the same time? And Jesus did that, but in John's gospel, it gives us some, some insight into um, what was going on there in John 1, verses 4. Verse 14, the first part of that verse, he phrases it this way. He says, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. The word that he's talking about there, of course, is Jesus. This word became flesh and, and dwelled among us. And so God himself took on human flesh. And so back to Colossians 2, it says then that in Christ all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. That fullness means he was God completely. 100% God. And yes, lived as a man as well. Uh, but, but I want to just kind of begin there today because this is a foundational truth for everything else that's, that, that we build our faith on and even Resurrection Day, all of it depends on this truth. And that is to remember that, that first of all, Jesus was and is fully God. That's where we start today. Now, that, that should raise a question, and that is, how do we know that this is really true? And that's, that's an audacious claim to make, right? And any lunatic could claim to be God, and sometimes they do. Or it could be that Jesus himself never claimed or believed that he was God, but his disciples after him began to make that case. I mean, how do we know 
that Jesus is really God. And so I don't want, we don't have time to camp out here for a really long time today, but I want to share just a little bit of, of evidence of how you know, we can build our faith around that idea that the fullness of the deity does dwell in him. And the first one is this, that Jesus fulfilled over 300 prophecies from the Old Testament. Uh, to, to help us just kind of wrap our minds around the probability of one person fulfilling all those prophecies. If you go just to uh, eight of those prophecies that have to do with uh, the birth of Christ and some other things along those lines, uh, there was a professor, and many of you have heard this story, I think I've shared this story before in the past, but a professor at Westmont College sat down with his, uh, some of his students, his classes, he had 12 different classes, and he had them go through and identify some of the prophecies about the coming Messiah. And they narrowed it down and, and to, to the point that even the most skeptical in the group could agree, okay, Jesus did fulfill these Old Testament prophecies. And then he took it and made it even more conservative because he didn't want any chance of overstating his case. And so they agreed on eight specific prophecies and then just went one by one. You can look it up for, for more details. It's an interesting study. But he presented his findings to the American Scientific Affiliation and they were to check his calculations, and they agreed that the calculations were accurate. So based on their calculations, they determined that the probability of one person fulfilling just these eight prophecies, okay, not the hundreds of others, but just these eight, was one in one times ten to the 17th power. Now, I'll put that, that, that number on the screen a little bit, if it helps sometimes to have a, a bit of a visual um, but maybe what helps even more is the, the perspective that that professor gave. And he said, okay, let me, let me help you understand what the chances are of that number. One and, you know, one with 17 zeros behind. If you were to take silver dollars and spread them across the entire state of Texas to a depth of two feet, and you mark just one of those silver dollars... Of all of those, the probability of somebody finding it by chance would be like blindfolding someone, telling them to walk anywhere they want to walk throughout the state or drive or whatever you want to do, and then just randomly coming to a spot while blindfolded, reaching down, picking up one of those silver dollars, and that being the one coin that was marked uh, out of all of them. That, that's a mind-boggling probability, but again, I would remind you, that's only eight of the prophecies that Jesus fulfilled. So fulfilled prophecy is a big one. The fact that he lived a sinless life obviously points to his divinity. The fact that he performed miracles and specifically including raising the dead and even exercising power over nature. He claimed to be one with the Father and to sit at the right hand of the Father. I mean, Jesus was executed for blasphemy. It was very clear that people understood he was claiming to be God. He taught with an authority that nobody had ever seen before. And then the final proof is what we celebrate today. And that is that Jesus came back from the dead. That is the, 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 the most convincing fact is that he, he rose from the dead. He appeared to his disciples multiple times. He appeared to a crowd of more than 500 people. Um, his disciples' lives were completely transformed. You cannot explain what happened in their lives apart from acknowledging that Jesus was alive and it appeared to them. That's the only way that we can explain it. And so 
This day that we call Easter, that we celebrate today, provides this indisputable evidence that Jesus really is, as it says here, the fullness of God in bodily form. He was God who lived as a man. And so once we establish that truth, we're ready to move on. But that is foundational. We have to, we have to start there. But then in verse 10, it says, okay, here's what happens as a result of that fact. And in Christ, it says, you have been brought to fullness. So here's really the second main idea today is that we find ultimate fulfillment only in Christ. We are brought to fullness only in and through Christ. And that word fulfillment or fullness, uh, it, it can mean to be filled up by something or it can mean to be fulfilled by something. And I think both of those meanings are accurate here. Both of those apply, right? That we need to be completely filled up, but also that, that we are fulfilled. And the key phrase here is that little phrase, in Christ. See that in verse 10? And in Christ, you have been brought to fullness. That's the only way that we really find this fullness, this fulfillment that God designs for us. And I wonder if anybody is courageous enough to admit today that you've been looking for fulfillment in the wrong places. Do you admit that? I mean, I think all of us know some of the wrong places to look, and I'm not even going to go there. I'm not even going to spend time on that, because if you're trying to find fulfillment in, in places that are harmful, you already know that, right? You already know how harmful that is, so I'm not going to dwell on that. But what I do want to talk about is, is the fact that sometimes the, the places that we look for fulfillment are not necessarily bad things. In fact, they may be gifts that God has given us. It's just that they're not designed to fill the void that only God can fill. Well, let's take one that's probably on a lot of people's minds today because it's Easter Sunday, right? Let's talk about family, which, you know, many of you are, are together with family or you'll be, be getting together with family later today. That's a wonderful thing, and I hope that we can all agree that, that family should be a blessing from God. Now, I think it's also important to acknowledge this. I realize that in every situation, that's not the case for everybody. And so I know that sometimes family relationships can be strained and they can be painful and they can be difficult. And so I think it's important for us to acknowledge that. But even in those cases, I think most of us realize that's not the way it should be. That's not the way God designed it to be. So family is, it should be a wonderful thing. But if we're looking to family, to a spouse, to a child to grandchildren, to whatever it may be. If we're looking to anything to fill us other than God, it's not going to happen because it says in Christ we have been brought to fullness. And it's important even the, to, not to get too technical here into the grammar, but this is, this is important in verse 10 too to understand kind of the, uh, the, the, the tense here in Greek is called the middle voice, which is, is similar to the passive tense in English. It means that the subject does not bring the action on himself. Okay, So it says, in Christ you were brought to fullness, meaning that we don't make this happen for ourselves. This is something that God does for us or in us, in Christ. He's the one who brings fullness, not us. And then it goes on in verse 11 and, and continues that thought when it says, in him you were also circumcised with a circumcision not performed by human hands, 
your whole self ruled by the flesh was put off when you were circumcised by Christ. What he's talking about here, this circumcision not performed by human hands, uh, you may recall that in the Old Testament, circumcision was the kind of the symbol, the outward symbol of God's covenant relationship with his people. And so all the male children would be circumcised, and that was a way of just showing that they were dedicated and kind of set apart to God. What he says here about circumcision not performed by human hands, he's saying that's what God does in our hearts. Still the same idea of being set apart to God, belonging to God. But that's not a physical act. That is something that happens in the heart, and it's something that happens only through Christ. And so it says here, and this is an interesting comparison, when it says that your whole self was, that was ruled by the flesh was put off when you were circumcised. So in circumcision, there is a part of flesh that is put off, right? But in this circumcision, it says the whole self, like all of you, every part of you is set apart for God. And he's speaking here to believers. Now, if that isn't you at this point, the things that he's talking about in this specific passage aren't true of you yet, but they can be. In fact, I'm, I'm quite confident that for many people today, they will come to know who God is and they will experience this relationship with God for the first time today, and I'm excited about that. Um, but let's, let's just look in and see what happens a little bit further on here as we do allow Christ uh, to, to take control of our lives and as we trust him. Let's skip ahead to verse 13. Verse 13 says, When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. Now I want to stop there. We're going to come back to the rest of that here in just a moment. But third thing I want us to see is that he made us alive when we were spiritually dead. Isn't that remarkable to think about? That God made us alive when we were spiritually dead. That, that's why the resurrection of Jesus is so powerful. That's why we, we come back to this, not just on Easter Sunday, by the way, but, but continually, because it's the fact that God is able to bring life out of death. That's what the resurrection is. He physically did that for Jesus. And he brings life out of death for us if we allow him to do that as well. You know, one of the things I've, I know I've said many times before and probably will continue to say again because it's important for us to, to, to grasp and to, to understand is the fact that, that dead people can't bring themselves back to life, right? I mean, that, that probably kind of goes without saying. But dead people can't bring themselves back to life. Only God can do that. And the fact is, the Bible tells us that, that we are spiritually dead. See, I, I think some of us have a, a, a mindset that we're really just spiritually sick. You know, maybe we're just a little bit off. We, maybe we acknowledge, yeah, maybe I'm sinful, I'm not perfect, I'm not, you know, doing everything the way that I should. But we don't grasp the fact that we're spiritually dead. And here's why that's so important, because sick people, when highly motivated, can accomplish some really cool things, some amazing things. Now, growing up in this area from the time I was a little bitty kid in the DFW area and being a, a sports fan, my mind always goes to examples like that. And so uh, having grown up here, I've always been a Dallas Mavericks fan and um, grew up going to games and things like that. And, and, and so my mind went back to 2011 
uh, when the Mavs were, were in the finals. And at that time, of course, their, their best player was Dirk Nowitzki, and, and they kind of depended on him for everything. And uh, game four of that series, Mavs are down two games to one. And right before game time, Dirk doesn't look right. And they start checking into it, and he's just sweating. He's slumped over in the locker room, doesn't look good. They figure out he has the flu. 101 fever, chills, feels terrible, goes out and attempts to play, and doesn't play very well to begin the game. They get into the fourth quarter. Mavs are down 10 points in the fourth quarter, and Dirk just somehow wills himself, you know, to, to, to take over, and he scores 10 points the last 10 minutes of the game. Mavs come back, they actually win the game, that turns the momentum, they end up winning their first and only championship. But it was a reminder to me that when highly motivated, sick people can do some pretty cool stuff. Dead people can't. And so the reason it's so important for us to, to understand this truth that because of our sin we're spiritually dead is because that tells us, guys, there's nothing we can do to bring ourselves back from that. We, we can't. We are incapable of doing it, but God can. And really, that's the point. It says God made you alive. God is the one who brought us back from death to life. And that's really the point of all of this. You know, God is, is the central figure in the gospel story, not us. I mean, yes, it's true that he loves us. Yes, it's true that he desires a relationship with us. But the central figure here is Jesus. He's the one who came back from the dead. And as a result, the last thing I want us to see, we're going to camp out on this one just for a minute here, because it's just absolutely mind-blowing in verse 13. Again, let me just read the second part of verse 13. It says that he forgave us all our sins. That's the fourth thing. He forgave us all our sins. Not that he forgave us some of our sins or most of our sins. It says that he forgave us all of our sins. So, may I ask you a personal question? Does anybody struggle to believe that to be true in your life? Or maybe another way of saying it, does anybody struggle to receive God's forgiveness in your life? I think some of us do. And sometimes we, we use a phrase, um, we talk about forgiving ourselves. You ever said that before? You know, I'm just, I, I just can't forgive myself. And I understand what we mean by that, but um, here's, a, here's a phrase that I think is a more accurate description of what we're talking about, is that we have a hard time allowing ourselves to receive the forgiveness that God offers. Because the reality is that, that we are not capable, we don't have the authority to forgive sin. Only God does. And so truly, we can't forgive ourselves. I mean, that would be like um, someone who is convicted for murder saying that I'm going to pardon myself. Well, great, but if you don't have the authority to do that, it's not going to happen, right? And so the one who, who can forgive is God, and he does. Now, here's the difference in that, that illustration. If you are convicted on death row and you are pardoned, of your crime you don't have the option to reject that pardon you you can't really say well I'd rather stay here and die right? I mean if you're pardoned you're pardoned that's it you're out you don't get to stay there anymore 
It's different when it comes to the forgiveness that God extends to us. Because we have the choice, am I going to receive it or am I not? And I just want to encourage you with this today. If you struggle to, to believe that God can and will forgive you, let me just remind you, that's God's job to do that. God is the one with the authority to forgive sins, and he does. And he extends that to us. We simply need to receive it. And then it goes on, and there's just some beautiful language here. Verse 14 talks about how having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness. I mean, think about that for a minute. Having canceled, that, that's talking about being pardoned, right? There is a legal indebtedness that we have. We, every single one of us, we have rebelled against God. We are sinful people. I am a sinful person. You're a sinful person. All of us are. And as a result, we have this legal indebtedness that stands against us. But what it says here is that God took that charge. It says he has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. So whenever you begin to feel that, you know, condemnation, just picture in your mind everything that you've ever done wrong being nailed to the cross with Jesus. In fact, maybe a better picture than that is imagine everything that, that you've ever done wrong being written across the body of Jesus. You know, literally, Jesus taking on our sin, which is what he did. And when he died, those sins were being nailed to the cross with him. You know what that means? It means that we can let those things go. It means that, that we can live in freedom. It means that we don't have to carry those things around with us anymore. Years ago, uh, I had a conversation with somebody uh, who was struggling to receive God's forgiveness and believe you know, that God could really forgive him of all these things. And, and I suggested that he do something, just partly because of how I knew he was wired. And I said, uh, here's what I want you to do. I want you to write down every single sin you can think of that you've ever done. And then I want you to put together a, a cross, because he was kind of a handy type of guy, and go out somewhere in the woods or wherever it may be, take that and, and just nail those sins to the cross. And he did. And he actually said that, that was very helpful to him to have that visual. And maybe that's something, if you struggle with that, maybe you want to do something like that, but just to have that visual of all of my sins being nailed to the cross. That's what it says happened. And then in verse 15, it continues on and it gets you know, even, even better in verse 15. It says, and having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Now, the powers and authorities that he's talking about here, he's talking about those in the spiritual realm, right? He's not just talking about earthly authorities, but more those who... Um, that, that are described in Ephesians as, you know, the, our, our struggle not being against flesh and blood, but against the powers and authorities. So he disarmed them, which raises a question for me of, okay, if, if he disarmed them, what were they armed with? Because if you disarm someone, right, you're taking away their arms. So what kind of arms did he take away from them? And I'm sure there are a lot of different things that we could talk about, but verse 14 has a word in it that I want to come back to because it talks about those things that stood against us. It says, and condemned us. Let's just think about that one thing that Christ has done to disarm the enemy. He's taken away condemnation. 
that voice that is always condemning. You don't measure up. Nobody loves you. Your life isn't worth anything. You're so stupid. You aren't attractive. You always mess everything up. Maybe God forgives others, but he'll never forgive you. You ever heard any of those voices before? You ever heard that, that condemnation before? This passage tells us that when, when the enemy was disarmed, that God took those things away. You know why he uses condemnation? Why that's one of the enemy's biggest weapons? Is because it works. It's because we listen to it. Because we don't have to. We have been set free. Romans 8.1 says that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We don't have to live under that condemnation because Christ is alive. Death could not keep him. The grave could not hold him. Sin could not defeat him. Jesus is alive. And because Jesus is alive... That means there's hope for us. It means we don't have to live under that anymore. All of those things have been taken away. They've been nailed to the cross, and we've been given new life in Christ. That's why Easter is such a big deal. That's why I say going back to, I used to look at it and say, yeah, I think they're, they're overblowing and being a little overdramatic. No, not because, because of this. Because all of those things that we have done, all of our sins from the past, have, have been nailed to the cross and we've been given life in Christ. That's life-changing. And that can be life-changing for every single one of us today. I know many of you, you've experienced that already. You know the impact of having your sins nailed to the cross and being forgiven. But if I could just kind of cut to the chase for a minute, I suspect there may be some that haven't yet experienced that, haven't yet really come to know the forgiveness that he offers. And so today, I just want us to, to have an opportunity for you to put your trust in Christ. See, if you're trying to make things right with God on your own, it's not going to work. Dead people can't bring themselves back to life again. But in Christ, we can have new life. So I just want to encourage you today and urge you to put your faith in Jesus Maybe even some that are joining us online today, maybe you have never been to a place where you have trusted in Christ, where you put your faith in Him. Don't miss this opportunity today to find new life in Christ. That's what Easter is all about. Don't reject Him. Don't miss the chance to come to know Him in a personal way. In fact, what I want to do today, I just want to pray because I know that's a big decision I know it can be a difficult thing, so I want to pray specifically for those that may be wrestling with that a little bit. So let's pray together. Father, I thank you today that, that you love us and desire a relationship with us, and you want to draw us into a relationship with you. And so I pray, Lord, if there's somebody here with us, if there's somebody that's watching online right now that's really wrestling with the decision to trust in you, Lord, would you... Just give that person the courage to take that step today, even now. Thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.